This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Ramia. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI's on air community, and everyone's invited. Here we are again, arriving on your entertainment system. Kelly McDonald here, and I'm Brock Richardson coming to you from Kitchener, Ontario. I'm settled in at the London, Ontario home studio, and behind me on the screen back there, we've got the CN Tower. We've got a uh, somewhat foggy kind of look of of the skyline of Toronto. I have a uh, camel cover colored with a black band around it, fedora, a sport coat, and a pink shirt on today. Three button. Mr. Richardson, welcome back to the show as you fill in for Rumya. How are things in KW? Things are good. It's a little chilly outside today, but things are good. In my background, you will see a variety of sports pictures. Uh, plus, then today we have the KNR Kelly and Romeo water bottle, and I am wearing a black button-up shirt with what is diamonds on the front. So that is what you see in my image today. Hmm. Bow tie. Well. Oh, yes, and the bow tie. I do forget about the purple bow tie that is worn on purpose uh, for the Kelly and Romeo colors. It is purple. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, sir. Appreciate that and appreciate having you joining us again on the show. And uh, we've got a lineup for you, which we'll get to in a couple of moments. But Jeff Ryman just sent us a little bit of an announcement that we want to get out there. The British Columbia government has introduced legislation to make September 30th a paid statutory holiday. EA. All right. Now, this is to mark the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Labor Minister uh, Harry Baines introduced the bill into the legislature, saying the holiday will be observed this September and every September 30th afterward. This is tremendous. Fedora's off to the legislature and everybody who gives assent to this. This is, uh, this is wonderful, wonderful to hear. Brock and I now will set you up with what's going on in our program today. What is dry brushing and what are the benefits of doing it? Well, wellness contributor Francis Wong lets us know later on. What are some signs and symptoms of age-related macular degeneration? We learn more with Dr. Larissa Moniz of Fighting Blindness Canada. On our parenting se segment later on, Lucia Belafonte talks to us about managing expectations so that you and your child can thrive. That conversation, an important one again, folks, on this show as usual, will happen later on in hour two. So interesting, a new poll suggests that one third of Canadian households believe they're financially worse off, believe it, worse off than a year ago. 
58% of respondents to the Leger poll commissioned by the Association for Canadian Studies said their financial situation is about the same as it was a year ago. 9% report their financial situation has improved. Quebecers were the least likely to report their financial situation has worsened, while respondents in British Columbia were most likely to report the same. 1,554 Canadians completed the online survey, which cannot be assigned a margin of error. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. Kind of makes you feel like as time has gone on, as people move their way through the pandemic to where we are now, Brock, and they look at the fact that so much has gone up, it's like, wow, taking notice. And I don't know if it's because more of us have more we want to do, and that financial bucket seems to be wow, there, there's less in here now. I mean, a lot of people got used to having money because there was nowhere to spend it. And now maybe that is kind of making people feel a little offset. I, I don't know. Have have you felt this way or has it helped you? I, I, I myself personally feel it's helped me a little bit be better with my dollars. Yeah, I actually think that there's a portion of the public who because we didn't spend so much money uh, during the pandemic and the height of it, People are almost like, well, I have it, so I got to spend it. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, yep. it, it's almost like it's burning a hole in, in in individuals' pockets. And the truth of the matter is, is, you know, you often hear the expression, save it for a rainy day, because you never do know uh, when those rainy days do come. But I do think people are still kind of sort of recovering also from the financial deficits that some people were in from the pandemic. And that's what's really hard to tell. Um, how many people got painted into a corner? How many people made those savings? How many people are finding right now that little bit of uh, elbowing from the government? You got to pay this back. What I already did, or I didn't, or oh gosh, yeah, what what perfectly timed is this? And are there the sales we're used to having? You know, I, when you go to your favorite store and they're advertising a sale, how much of the store is on sale? I think so many of these things, plus what we talk about every day, it seems now on the show, the price of groceries, fuel, and, and everything like that, getting at some point in the last six months, if not continuing, outrageous. Uh, we we really do feel or are aware. And then if you try to plan something you want to do, you're hearing so much talk about how expensive everything is, it can be defeating. And I'm sure play that mind game on you, of course, let alone if you go to the bank, look in there and say, there's nothing here, Brock. Yeah, I think we get caught into that word of a sale. So because when we see it, we think, oh, it must be a sale, you know, and we don't really know how much of a bargain that sale really is versus the connection we have with the word itself. Well, we forget that the reason for the sale, the advertising for it is simply to get your fanny into the into the place to look around and then spend money on something more expensive. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Brock and I are going to step aside for a couple of moments. Up next, Danielle Johnkind joins us to talk about virtual care, which is rapidly evolving in veterinarian medicine. It's Kelly and Rumya beginning our, what is this, Tuesday edition. Stick around. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back. Well, countdown is on, ladies and gentlemen. The clock's been ticking. A month now, 
All right, it's your chance to enter the contest, ladies and gentlemen, the Dream Big Contest. It closes tomorrow, so enter now. You've got one day to do so. This gives you a chance to win a Tempur-Pro Adapt Mattress. Tempur-Pedic mattresses are designed with one-of-a-kind temper material to precisely adapt to your weight, shape, and temperature. Offering unmatched comfort and support, many out there will testify to that, ladies and gentlemen. So if you need those rules, and of course, that place to enter, go to ami.ca slash krcontest. Please get in on this, folks. We're celebrating the show being on the air. We've been here almost a month now. We've got to do it in style, and in style is announcing a winner. I'm Kelly McDonald with Brock Richardson. Someone is going to be one lucky winner of a comfortable bed. What we are lucky to do right now is uh, welcome in our veterinarian, Danielle Junkine. Let's do it. Whether they provide us with companionship and income, food, or serve a critical role in the ecosystems that support us, animals are vital to human health. Have fun with us as we learn about animal-related topics and about the amazing bond we share with our animal friends. As we mentioned, we do this every Tuesday here on the program, and I just want to mention that Danielle is represented by a black cat avatar with a Hmm, purple phone, as we talked about purple on the program, representing the Kelly and Ramya colors. Danielle, how are you? I am good and just so thankful for that purple phone. I wish my phone in my living room was that same color. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's, it's uh, definitely a very nice purple. I enjoy it very much. Today we're yep, talking just, about... Just like the bow tie. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, today we're talking about virtual care. Can we start by talking about what exactly it is and how long it's been a part of veterinarian medicine? Sure. Well, you know, some people call virtual care telemedicine. Um, and really, I consider the two terms as referring to the same thing. So really, as soon as humanity developed both veterinarians and the ability to communicate with each other distantly, we began to have telemedicine. So really, like anytime your veterinarian calls to see how your pet is doing or they give you results or advice over the phone, that technically is telemedicine. Um, anytime vets consult on cases with each other over the phone, that's also telemedicine. So we've technically had it for a very long time. But, you know, when I graduated from vet school, gosh, almost 24 years ago now, that's pretty scary. Um, the phone was really the only viable option for providing vet care remotely. But, you know, we used it all the time to talk to clients and to other veterinary care providers. Um, I recall from my early days a service uh, for ECGs called CardioPet, where you hook the ECG leads up to the pet from the CardioPet machine. The machine recorded the ECG, translated the data into sound, and then sent it over the phone line to a cardiologist who would interpret it and send a report back with the results. And back then, that was pretty awesome. You know, we were like, wow, that's so neat. But, you know, later when imaging went digital, you know, first with right. digital cameras and then with people with their phones um, and even medical diagnostic equipment went digital, like x-rays, you know, um, sending pictures and videos of animal health issues suddenly became feasible. So, you know, clients were able to email their vets images and videos of what they were seeing at home. Vets could send each other images and videos as well. And medical records programs became capable of storing these images as part of the medical record. And then we became capable of communicate, communicating with clients via email, 
which was really helpful for documenting conversations and advice, um, since, you know, you can copy and paste those conversations into the medical record. Um, I will say that texting between vets and clients is still something of a challenge since phones don't communicate with computer network or medical records programs very easily. But, you know, today virtual vet care telemedicine is evolving even more with some businesses offering virtual appointments over phone or video call without an in-person visit. I'm curious, Danielle, in, in your opinion, are virtual visits as good as in-person? Uh, no, um, a virtual visit really cannot replace an in-person visit, um, but that doesn't mean that virtual care can't be useful. Uh, virtual care certainly has a role to play in triage and in decision-making. Mm -hmm. um, we all know that no veterinarian can be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week for pet emergencies. Um, you know, we're people, we have to eat, we have to sleep. <laughs> we have to take care of our own mental health just like everybody else does. And of course, we know that the veterinary industry is currently understaffed, you know, and we also have seen that wait times at emergency hospitals and after hour clinics can be very long and frustrating for a worried pet owner. Um, a lot of people go to emergency clinics because they don't have the medical training to know what can actually wait and what really does need to be seen right away. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, that can clog up the works, it can lead to increased wait times for everybody. So, you know, virtual care really has a role to play in alleviating this problem. So, you know, if a pet owner can speak to a veterinary healthcare provider and get good advice, you know, they can know whether they really have to go in or not. Um, and virtual care might also be appropriate for just helping a pet out until the regular veterinarian is able to see them in person for those non-emergency things that could maybe wait a day or two. Is virtual care a legal thing, Danielle? And who is qualified to give care to my pet uh, in the virtual sense? Well, actually, you know, that's a really important bit of information to know because in Canada, each province licenses and polices their own veterinarians. So a veterinarian is legally only allowed to practice on an animal that physically lives in or is visiting a province in which they are licensed. So, you know, this standard still applies to virtual care. So for example, if you live in Newfoundland, a vet licensed only in Ontario cannot legally give you virtual veterinary care because they aren't licensed to practice there. Um, a vet from another country cannot legally practice virtually here either unless they hold a license in the jurisdiction in which they're seeing patients. Um, is it possible to get advice from an international veterinarian online? I haven't looked into it personally, but I assume so, you know. But you should, of course, be aware of the risks of taking advice from, from just anyone. So, you know, not every international training program for vets is equivalent to the rigorous process we have for training and licensing vets here. Um, there might also be genetic, environmental, and population differences in animals, you know, where the other vet is practicing that influence what conditions they're likely to see there. So in practical terms, that, that means that, you know, we may not see certain diseases here that they have in other parts of the world, and the reverse is also true. So, you know, you really want the vet giving you advice to know what's happening with respect to animal health in the area where your pet actually lives. And, you know, to avoid these pitfalls, you want to make sure that, you know, if someone's providing you with virtual vet care, um, you want to make sure that they're licensed in the province where you are. Um, and this goes for veterinarians and for registered veterinary technicians who have their own licensing body. 
So, you know, don't take advice from anyone else. Um, you can certainly check that a vet is licensed in your province by visiting the provincial licensing body's website and looking them up. They all maintain public registers there. Um, for example, in Ontario, you can find a register of all vets licensed in the province at the College of Veterinarians of Ontario website. And the Ontario Association of Veterinary Technicians also keeps a searchable database of all registered veterinary technicians licensed in Ontario on their website as well. Excellent. Amazing resource and something to check. I know sometimes you get thinking, hey, this person has credentials, This, especially if you are investigating something online, something troublesome, and you come across somebody's posting. And I guess if you want to know the legitimacy of the person and, and, and what you're reading based on some of that, just do that cross-checking. I'm curious, with veterinarians doing virtual care, can they actually provide or prescribe medication for pets that way? Well, since the provincial veterinary licensing bodies regulate um, under what circumstances a veterinarian can prescribe medication, this answer can vary from province to province, you know. In Ontario, where I practice, a veterinarian providing virtual care now has a limited ability to prescribe medication for pets that they have not seen in person. For example, they cannot prescribe controlled drugs or narcotics. Um, if they determine that a prescription that is allowed is needed based on a virtual visit, they may only prescribe enough medication for your pet to see them through until they can see their regular veterinarian when their regular veterinarian opens up. So no more than that. Um, the medication, you know, of course, can be dispensed from a veterinary clinic or through a human pharmacy if they, if that's appropriate. Like some some medications we use in common, so you can get them at a human pharmacy. Right. Uh, you mentioned earlier in this conversation that one of the bigger advantages is to of virtual uh, care is to alleviate some of the pressure on emergency clinics and. Hopefully, you know, you can determine what is an emergency and what isn't. Are there any other advantages beyond that, Danielle, that you wish to cover? Sure. And, you know, you're right. Like used correctly, virtual care can help alleviate stress on people. It can alleviate stress on pets and on strained veterinary resources. Um, for pet owners, it's extremely helpful to get advice from a medical professional on whether your pet actually needs to see the um, emergency clinic at 2 a.m. or not. And, you know, if the answer is yes, your pet should go in, then virtual care might be able to help you coordinate which after-hours hospital in your area has the capacity to see your pet. Um, they may be able to call ahead and let the hospital know you're coming and give them the heads up on what's going on. They may also be able to advise you on the wait time you're likely to see. So, you know, all of these advantages can help get your pet seen faster and get you home sooner. Um, if it is determined that your pet can be managed as an outpatient, you know, with virtual care until your regular vet is available to see them, you know, you can rest easier knowing your pet is looked after and is as comfortable as possible until you can get them to an in-person appointment. And reputable virtual care providers will be able to send your regular veterinarian the medical records from your pet's virtual visit, you know, if you provide their contact information. And in fact, a lot of veterinary clinics are starting to sign on with reputable and legal virtual care providers to help their clients navigate the after-hours emergency scene. So that's definitely something that, um, you know, is kind of a useful thing to know, too. Very good. 
um, really interesting because you look at the way you use it is just crucial and it can work so much for you. But flip side, and of course, leave it to Kelly to be uh, coming in on that flip side. What are the disadvantages of virtual care and what can we do to avoid them, Danielle? Well, you know, there, there's always the possibility of missing something that might have been caught on an in-person physical exam, mm -hmm. you know, and that can lead to de a deterioration in the pet's condition. And of course, another disadvantage is that a virtual care provider doesn't know your pet or have access to their medical records. And that, of course, heightens the risk of some bad thing happening, you know, for example, like two medications interacting or a treatment that was prescribed through a virtual visit worsening a previous medical condition that the virtual vet didn't know that your pet had. Um, and of course, there's always the risk of fraud that we have to consider as well. You know, people who are pretending to be veterinarians online and charging you for advice they have no qualifications to give. You know, so to avoid those downfalls, you know, like we talked about before, just be sure you verify the identity and qualifications of veterinary professionals you get virtual care from. So use those provincial licensing body websites I mentioned earlier, or get the name of a reputable virtual care clinic from your own veterinarian. Which one do they recommend? Who should I call after hours if you're using these people or not? Um, also, make sure you know something about your pet's medical history and tell anyone seeing your pet virtually about any pre-existing medical conditions. You know, some, right. sometimes I, you know, I get, <laughs> I get the comment, my wife usually deals with the vet. I really don't know what the dog has, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, that, that, of course, can be dangerous with virtual care. Um, also, of course, have any medications your pet takes on hand for a virtual appointment. So, I mean, you of know, course. most pet owners, they know their pet's meds as the little white pills or the little pink pills or that liquid I put on the food every day. And, of you know, course. virtual vets... Danielle, time yeah. is not our friend. We have to uh, leave it there, but it is always great information and it's important to do your homework. Thanks so much. Danielle John Coyne joins us weekly at this time for Ask a Veterinarian. We will be back in two minutes, folks. Question, what is dry brushing and what is the benefits of doing it? Wellness contributor Francis Wong will be here to let us know. Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Ramya return with more in a moment. At a doctor's appointment earlier today, and of course, I pine for the, oh, I wish we could do this virtually, but those mm -hmm. times have changed. I mean, you know, it, it's nice to have it as that component for us as well. As a pet owner, is it something that you feel, have you had success, have you had experience with doing the virtual care, or, or is it always an in-visit? In, in yeah, we've had the experience of the virtual care, and it usually consists of when something goes array in the middle of the night, and you're just like, is this a need now, or... or you know, in, in due time. And luckily, uh, both of our hospitals are, are of the, or both of our vets are of the hospital variety. So they are open uh, longer, but it's, it's just that call you have to make sometimes where it's like, what is this? Do I need to do this now? And most of the time they're very good at saying, yeah, we're busy right now. We can do this another day. It can wait or mm -hmm. no, it can't. You better come in right now. Yeah, well, they're busy enough themselves, as Danielle pointed out. So I think we're getting straight up conversation and nobody wants to take a chance and say, yeah, it can wait and and not be sure enough or make that call, um, you know, whether it's virtually or even in person, you know, if you show up. 
Folks, we've got a lot of program ahead. Thanks for being back with us. That guy's Brock Richardson in Kitchener, Ontario. I am in London, Ontario at the home studio here. Let's talk and get into a conversation as we chat about the world of wellness with Francis Wong. Hello, I'm Francis Wong, and I invite you to join me as we explore topics of health and wellness so that you can make the best choices for you to live an informed and radiant life. So we often think at this time of the year about the things we don't love about winter. It might be the cold and then shorter days. Um, of course, it depends where you live in the world, but those of us in Canada, we usually wake up in the dark and go home in the dark during the winter months. The other thing that seems to be unavoidable in the winter time is dry skin, and that's what we're here to talk about today. And it will vary, of course, across the country, but here there's winter everywhere. Uh, Francis, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Kelly. Yeah, one of the things that I dread a lot about winter, um, even more so than the polar bear plunges, since I can at least choose to avoid those, um, is is the dryness. Uh, winter is yeah. going to vary um, across the country, but um, even milder climates like Vancouver or Victoria still get a season of winter. Um, even though it's in the West, it's slightly um, different than the winter in, say, Ottawa or Montreal. Um, yes. In general, though, all of us still face the same issues, uh, indoor heating, which dries out our skin. So let's talk about a healthy skin routine with dry brushing to start. Yeah, let's start in the um, obvious place of what is dry brushing? Well, it's actually exactly as it seems, Brock. Uh, we brush our hair and we brush our teeth, so why not our skin? Dry brushing is something that's ideally done before taking a shower. While it may seem like a recent trend, um, dry brushing can be found in the Ayurvedic practices and in countries um, like Greece and Japan. And it's also known as a dry massage. And again, Ayurveda being a sister science to yoga has been around for thousands of years. In Ayurveda, this is part of Dinacharya um, or daily practice. And the benefits of this brushing is to help with the exfoliation of the skin and increasing circulation as the brushing will stimulate circulation. Some people have claimed that it reduces or minimize, minimizes cellulite as well. Now, I want to add that there appears to be no scientific evidence of this, but it has been speculated that when people massage themselves, the skin may appear temporarily more plump, and that may help to reduce the appearance of cellulite. In any case, scientific studies haven't really been done on this because, let's face it, you can only make so much money off of a natural brush. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Um is there a specific way to do dry brushing? I mean, I'm assuming you're not just picking body parts and just, uh, you know, brushing it out or brushing it in or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, there is a procedure that we can follow for dry brushing. And one of the key points is that you do long strokes on bones and circular strokes along joints like elbows and knees. It's recommended that you do this in the bathtub or the shower so that you get, don't get flaky skin all over your floor. And then you can start from your feet and work your way up towards your heart. The point of brushing in this way is to encourage movement of the lymphatic fluid towards your heart. Make sure that there is some overlap of the areas that you're brushing over. And um, when you do your um, your hands and massage from your hands up to your shoulder, again, you want to stroke towards your heart. For your belly and your butt, you can massage in a circular clockwise motion. 
And in terms of pressure, you can adjust based on how sensitive you are. But obviously, the more vigorously you massage, the more you're stimulating your skin and nerve endings. And it may be a great way to wake up for the day if you're the type of person who showers in the morning. So are there any um, situations where you should be doing dry brushing, like sensitive skin, cuts or wounds, that kind of thing? Yeah, if you have sensitive skin, then obviously you'll want to go with a lighter pressure of the brush. This is not so much of a concern in the winter, but if you had a sunburn during um, the summer and you wanted to dry brush, I'd probably say to wait until your skin was less irritated. Um, obviously, if you have skin conditions like eczema or psoriasis, you may also want to avoid that so you're not aggravating your skin further. And of course, if you've got uh, any cuts or open wounds on the body, you want to work around that. Mm. And you think about, you know, dead skin, dry, you know, and, and we know, hey, like a lot of that, if you're trying to get your body's trying to breathe, you've got that there. So I'm going to imagine it, it helps with that. But you mentioned earlier doing this before a shower. Is there any particular reason to do so? Yeah, um, a lot of people like to take a long, hot shower, and especially yes. okay. if you're coming out of the cold. Uh, some people like to scrub their body with an exfoliating brush while in the shower, and while there's nothing wrong with that, uh, hot water is known to strip moisture and oil from your skin. So you could end up drier and itchier than before. So another That's point seemed... to mention... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, so another, po another point to mention is that even if you don't dry brush, but you want to protect your skin, take shorter warm showers instead of hot long ones and use a gentle soap so that your skin can retain as much of the moisture as possible. As an extra bonus, you can do a body scrub every so often for that extra exfoliation. Once you're done your shower, lightly pat yourself dry with a towel as you already exfoliated yourself. And the goal is not to strip off another layer of skin after your shower. And if you have a tendency towards dry skin and who doesn't in the winter, you'll want to moisturize after your shower when your skin is still slightly damp. This way, the body care product that you use can help seal in the water from your shower. This seems really, really straightforward, but there are so many questions left unanswered. The first one I can think of is how often should one be dry brushing? This is going to vary uh, by individual based on how someone decides to prioritize their self-care. And it's also going to depend on how sensitive your skin is. It doesn't take that much time. So I suggest that people start with once or twice a week, maybe on the weekends when there isn't as much of a rush to get out the door, and then adding more and more days until you feel comfortable with that. Remember in Ayurveda, this is considered a daily practice. So as important as brushing your teeth. And after you've tried it, you might like it so much that you want to do it every day. People are probably stopping right now and thinking, if I want to do that, great. How do I get started? Well, hold it. I need the brush. What kind of brush? What should we know about that? This is going to be, uh, again, based on personal preference. But some of the things to consider are the bristles itself. Softer bristles are great for people with dry and sensitive skin and for people who are new to dry brushing. You want to kind of ease into this practice. If you want something in the middle of the road, then medium bristles is the way to go. And if you have tough or oily skin, then use a brush with strong bristles can help create more um, even skin tone and at the same time remove dead skin. 
However, you want to remember that if you're hurting yourself with a brush, then you need to back off. The bristles themselves can be made from animal hair like goat, horse, or hog hair, which are softer than vegan bristles that can be made from coconut or aguave plants. And one thing I do want to mention is that you don't want to use these body brushes on your face since the face has much more sensitive skin. And then you need to consider whether you want a, a brush with a long handle to make it easier for reaching your back or if you prefer something that takes up less space and is good for traveling, but a little trickier to use to reach for those hard to reach places. And those brushes may just have a strap across the back that you can slip your hand into, or you can get one of each. In terms of aftercare, you can clean the brush with a little bit of soap or shampoo and water every couple of weeks, or at least once a month and let it air dry. You mentioned earlier, you talked a little bit about moisturizing afterwards mm -hmm. are creams or lotions better well part of the benefits of dry brushing is that it can help to unclog the pores of your skin and remove oil dirt and residue so that your skin can then absorb more of the body care product ingredients having said that you also want to make sure that you're feeding your skin the products with the best ingredients out there the difference between a cream and a lotion comes down to the water and oil content Lotions are lighter with more water and less oil, and creams are the opposite. So if you have normal or slightly dry skin, then lotions should be fine, and the skin should be able to absorb the lotion easily. If you have medium dry skin, you can use a cream, and if you have very dry skin, you can try a body butter. Body butters are basically a thicker cream that uses ingredients like shea or mango butters, and sometimes will have oils like coconut or avocado oils added to it. And then they may add a fragrance using essential oils. And of course, one part of the body may be drier than another part. The best example would be your hands, which we use and wash more often. Dry knees and elbows are also common. And there's no rule that says that you must use a certain cream or lotion on your whole body. You can use lotion for your body and then use cream on those extra dry spots. In general, you want to be checking the ingredient label before buying and avoiding chemicals as much as possible. Things like parabens are used to extend a shelf life of a product by inhibiting growth of bacteria and mold. But parabens can potentially disrupt our endocrine systems, which means that they can impact our hormones. Ingredients like propylene glycol, which is used to thicken a body cream, is controversial and potentially carcinogenic as listed by the California Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment. So what you want to look for is a short, simple list of ingredients with as many recognizable items that you know, like water or sesame seed oil or shea butter, or perhaps flower extracts for fragrance. Bottom line is the simpler, the better for your body. Awesome. And I think that's what we like to hear. Make things simple. Keep it that way. Um, and, and as you say, the key things here, frequency, build yourself up to it. And Francis, could you one more time, the rotation, the as we want to make sure we try to keep movement towards the heart, could you just go over that again and so people get that when they start putting this into play? Absolutely. So what you want to do is you want to use long strokes on your on your bones. So that makes sense if you think about your arms and your legs. So and you also want to start from your feet up towards their heart. So then when you're at your ha hand, you're still going from your hand up through to your shoulder, that's towards your heart. And then for elbows and knees and joints and sh like shoulders, you'll want to brush in a circular motion. So you're brushing um, 
to cover the most surface area. And of course, you want to overlap the areas as you're brushing. So when you're brushing from your wrist to your elbow and elbow up to your shoulder, just overlap from um, forearm to upper arm. And stomach and back rotation. Stomach, back and rotation. Yep, you can go clockwise. And again, the pressure is going to be as much as you can tolerate, um, but just don't go crazy. Excellent. Francis, thank you. Very interesting. Never have heard of it. Have got some really interesting, interesting uh, information on this subject. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Francis Wong joins us weekly, uh, bi-weekly, excuse me, to talk wellness opposite our nutrition segment that we have with uh, Julia Karanchis. We'll do that next week here on the program. But at the moment, Brock and I will take a moment, think some of these things up. Hmm. All I can think about is my late mother saying, boy, in the wintertime, your skin gets so ashy. All right, this ashy fellow is going to step aside for a couple of moments. And when I return, what are some signs of age-related macular degeneration? We learn more with Dr. Larissa Moniz as she joins us of Fighting Blindness Canada, or from Fighting Blindness Canada. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. Catch the Pulse this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on AMI-audio. This week, Joita speaks to Alexa and Jacqueline Trild. These are co-founders of DateAbility, a dating app designed exclusively for people with disabilities. That's The Pulse this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time on AMI-audio. Available using your favorite podcast platform and YouTube. Kelly McDonald here. You can find me on Twitter at AMI Kelly Mac. You can find this guy, Brock Richardson, and he is at Neutral Zone BR on Twitter. That's where I am. And where we're going to go now is talking about February being age-related macular degeneration, AMD Awareness Month. Dr. Larissa Moniz, Director of Research and Mission Programs at Fighting Blindness Canada, is here to share what the early signs and the conditions of what you can expect when you are going to be possibly getting um, age-related macular degeneration, if I can spit that out. Uh, Larissa, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can we first start by talking about uh, what are some of the signs and symptoms of age-related macular degeneration, if you would. Absolutely. So age-related macular degeneration, or AMD to shorten it up, it is an eye disease that um, it causes a gradual decline of central vision. So you normally will not lose your peripheral vision, but you may lose some of your central vision, which is important for detail, um, for doing everyday tasks such as reading or watching TV or even recognizing faces. So in terms of some of the symptoms, um, at an early stage of um, AMD, you actually might not have any symptoms at all. And that's why it's really, really important to make sure that you are going for regular eye exams, especially if you're over the age of 50, which is when AMD is most common. And um, if your doctor 
like identifies that you're at an early stage of AMD, then it's really important to monitor your vision. So if you start to see any, any changes in your vision, especially if, for instance, um, straight lines start to appear bent or wavy, or if you have blurring in your central vision or dark spots start occurring, this could mean that the, um, the AMD has progressed to a more aggressive form called wet AMD. And so it's really important if you see any changes in vision to make sure you go to your eye doctor as quickly as possible. What can Canadians do, doctor, if they, who, you know, get diagnosed with AMD? So it depends on the type of AMD, actually. So there are two types of AMD. There is a type right. called dry AMD. And most people who are diagnosed with it will first be diagnosed with dry AMD. And then if it progresses, it can progress to a really aggressive type of dry AMD or advanced type called geographic atrophy. Or for about one in 10 people who have dry AMD, it might progress to a type called wet AMD. So if you've got dry AMD at the beginning, like I said, making sure you're going for regular appointments. If you're a smoker, it's probably a good idea to stop smoking because that can actually progress and make it worse. Um, and if it does start to progress, the dry AMD, you can take supplements sometimes. So that's really, um, you should really talk to your eye doctor to see if there's a supplement that would work for your type of AMD. And if it progresses even further to wet AMD, then there are some treatments called anti-VEGF um, injections. So this is a type of drug which is actually injected into the eye, but it um, helps slow down the progression of wet AMD. Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, what can Canadians do to make a difference in regards to all of this? So I think there are a few things. So first of all, I've said it a few times now, making sure you're going for your regular eye appointments, making sure, especially if you have either AMD yourself at the early stages or it's in your family, really keeping track of your eye health. And if you notice any changes in vision, going to the doctor right away, because three out of four cases of vision loss in Canada can actually be um, prevented or treated if caught early. So it's really important to try to catch any changes in your vision as early as possible so that you can um, get treatment if there's treatment available. Um, something else you can do is you can learn more about your eye health. Of course, it is AMD Awareness Month. So we are at Fighting Blindness Canada. We are this month, we're talking all about age-related macular degeneration. We have an education webinar coming up on February 21st. You can read more about what age-related macular degeneration is, what are some of the risk factors um, on, our, on our website. And um, some, if you do have AMD, you might want to start testing your eyesight out every day with something called an Amsler grid. So this is a little grid on a piece of paper. You'll put it on your fridge. And then if you stare at it, um, if the lines start to look wavy, it's a good um, indication that maybe something is going wrong with your eyesight. So this is something that you can do if you already have AMD to make sure it isn't progressing. Interesting. Okay. And I've heard of that. I'm curious, you mentioned, and would like to get into some of the events too, and things that guys have going on for the month and just other things you're working on. But you mentioned the supplements that could possibly help or be prescribed by a doctor. Um, I, I haven't heard of that. So I'm curious, once someone's diagnosed, and if they fall into that category, it, does it help slow things down? Does it treat? What tr does that do to add to your treatment? Yeah, so the supplements are, they're called ARAD, so A-R-E-D-S, and they are specifically, um, they have been shown to help reduce the progression of age-related macular degeneration if you have intermediate stage dry AMD. So it's actually very specific. So 
If right. you get diagnosed with AMD, it, it's not for everybody. Or if you've progressed too far, it won't help. So it's really in that sort of intermediate spot where it's starting to progress and taking those supplements can slow it down. It won't necessarily stop it progressing, but it does seem to slow down the progression in, in the studies that have been done. Yeah, well, we, we know slow down uh, is is at times just as good as if something could stop. We'll take it if it, Absolutely. If it helps. Absolutely. For sure. What research are you guys working on over there at FBC? So, um, so at Fighting Blindness Canada, we love to fund research into different types of blinding eye diseases, including age-related macular degeneration. So we're currently funding research about a lot of different things that might be important to somebody who has AMD. So we're mm. funding some research into trying to develop better treatments for wet age-related macular degeneration. So you have the anti-VEGF treatment, but what if um, you had a, a treatment that could um, improve how long it works for so you've got to take less injections or maybe you could avoid injections altogether if you could use a gene therapy approach um, something else that some of our researchers and researchers around the world are studying are how what happens if you've already lost some vision especially if you've had advanced wet amd or advanced um, dry amd or geographic atrophy there are some a lot of researchers studying something called stem cell therapy, which is trying to take these cells called stem cells, which can turn into lots of different cells and replace um, cells that may have died because of, of damage from AMD. So that's sort of, um, the stem cell therapy is still in both clinical trials as well as just laboratory work. There's nothing approved yet, but those are some of the exciting areas of research that both Fighting Blindness Canada funded researchers are studying as well as other researchers around the world. And how many, just to give us an idea, how many researchers in a rough estimate are actually doing like active research on this stuff that you're aware of? That is a really interesting question that I don't have an answer to, actually. Um, I don't actually know in Canada or even I would say hundreds or thousands, because a lot of time research that you're doing in one area may also be relevant to research in, a, in another area. So somebody might be studying, say, another type of eye disease and, and find out something, and then it's relevant to AMD. So actually, the anti-VEGF drugs I was talking about, they were actually first um, discovered or, or studied in the cancer field. So they were originally approved as a cancer treatment, and then they realized that they actually also work in um, for um, AMD. So yeah, so I, that, that's a really great question, but I, I don't have an answer to that, unfortunately. Mm. That's fair. It was just mm -hmm. one of those curiosities. What mm -hmm. events are taking place this month uh, that we can keep Canadians in the loop of uh, macular, macular Degeneration uh, Month? Yep. So as I mentioned, we have a webinar coming up on the 21st of February. It's at 4 p.m. It's with Dr. Tom Shido, who is uh, ophthalmologist and researcher at Western Ontario in London, Ontario. And he's coming to talk about age-related macular degeneration and sort of what's up and coming, what's in the clinical trial landscape, both for dry AMD as well as wet AMD. Um, we also are urging people in February, but also throughout the year to um, sign a petition to support a bill called Bill C-284. So this bill is calling for a national eye care strategy and it aims to focus attention and bring awareness about the importance of eye health because um, 2.5 million Canadians have age-related macular degeneration. 
and almost 200,000 Canadians have lost vision because of age-related macular degeneration. And so we think it's really important in, in this month to, um, to raise awareness of that and then ask people to support our, our eye health because we all know how important eye health is both for our general health, for our mental health, as well as um, all areas of our well-being. It fascinates me when we talk about research and because I think back to when I first really heard much about AMD and, you know, we, we look at the age, oh, mainly older people, then I've encountered people who are younger. Um, and when you say 50 and above, you know, start, you start, wow. And this wouldn't be knowledge, this knowledge wouldn't be there without so much research that you guys are doing and so many great doctors uh, like Tom and them are doing it that, that really really move the needle. So I always say really incredible to go listen if people don't have a chance to, but mostly to come and talk to anybody um, at some of these, uh, now the Zoom conferences or in person. But we also know there was quite a struggle through the pandemic. And I think some of those numbers are so scary too, because so many people couldn't get those treatments and are still behind in appointments, aren't they, doctor? Absolutely. So um, that's like such an important point so there's a lot of people who miss going to their optometrist so even for their regular eye checkups during the appointment when doctors offices were closed or people were scared to go and that means that some people maybe haven't been diagnosed early some people maybe have sort of missed it and already got diagnosed when they already had advanced AMD or other advanced types of eye disease and we also know that many people also miss going to get their um, anti-VEGF treatment. So for those people who have wet AMD, taking those treatments and taking them regularly is really, really crucial to prevent further vision loss. So this is part of the reason why we are calling for that national eye care strategy. We feel like if there had been a national plan in place, it would have prioritized eye health during the pandemic when, um, of course, there were other, other priorities as well. But um, we felt like in Canada, eye health completely got got ignored. And so that really was part of the impetus of, of um, saying now is really the time where we need, we need to make this happen. For sure. And I think, you know, to your point, I think we, you know, have all kind of taken eye health for granted, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm healthy to a point, but then we forget about if our eyes aren't healthy enough, then therefore uh, we, you know, can't, can't help ourselves like we want to. So I appreciate the time. Uh, thank you very much for coming on and sharing some great information with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Larissa Moniz, Director of Research and Mission Programs at Fighting Blindness Canada, who was talking to us today about age-related macular degeneration awareness month. And Kelly, the point that I took away really is how important our eye health really truly is. There's scary things about it too. Like like she said, when you wouldn't know that something is going on. That, again, we always talk about these the silent killers and we're talking silent killers of eyes potentially getting in there, getting rooted in enough that you can't do in anything or enough um, to save them. And so much can be done. We have another hour of the program in that hour. Uh, Mandy McLean is the project coordinator for the W. Ross McDonald and Prologue Performing Arts Project. Let's find out more about it. It's an interesting collaboration. And on our parenting segment, Lucia Belafonte will be talking about uh, managing expectations so that you and your child can thrive 
But up next, Mathieu Rochette, our community reporter from Montreal, has all sorts of news for us. Today, he lets us know about the implementation of various universal accessibility uh, tools for crossing. We'll talk to him in a moment. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts. 